just want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, really the director of uh, programming who's been helping set up all the live stream equipment and making sure it's running effectively. Like the last couple weeks, the podcast is a little jittery. Well, that's because the senior center's internet has been throttled, apparently. So we're putting together all the hardware and all that stuff. The same guy who's leading you in worship is also the one who's troubleshooting that at the back right now. So can we just thank Brian and Joe, who's at the soundboard, everybody. We are doing our best as a setup and teardown church, pulling in all this equipment, setting it up, making the best live stream, having the best gathering that we can possibly have. And uh, I do have some bad news I want to share with you really quickly. Uh, It looks like, uh, for those of you who are fans of the mustache, the nine of you, uh, I will be cutting it soon, likely. My wife gave me the final word yesterday. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not my wife. That's not my wife. All right, so... You know, enjoy this if you were one of those nine people that really appreciated it. You know, it says in the scriptures that we should submit to one another in our marriages out of reverence for Christ. So something changes with my facial hair, she's the one to blame. Talk to her, okay? And I will be teaching a marriage class on that in a little bit because I've heard some of your marriages don't operate that way. Um, But on a more serious note, I do want to talk to you about finances in our church community. This is something that is uh, pretty rare for us as a conversation, Uh, but I am in a mindset right now uh, looking ahead toward May, toward June, to our new budget year in July, uh, realizing that there's a lot of factors that are going to be influencing the budget that we put together. I mean, you guys know the pressure in society right now, affordability, inflation. That's just a couple of the factors that are on my mind as I'm looking ahead into this next ministry year. And the first thing I want to say is I want to praise God for the fact that we have been sustained as a ministry up to this point. Yes, amen. I shared at the State of the Church that a year ago, about this time, when we started gathering together after a long period of distancing, that the trends were dire. That It was very, very bad. And we were looking at an extensive reorganization as a church after a long period of difficulty. But many of you stepped up, you gave significantly, and you have sustained this ministry. And I consider it to be nothing short of a miracle that we're in the place that we're in today. So praise God. It's wonderful. It's amazing. I said that at the State of the Church. But I do want you to know as well that we are operating at our full capacity as a church in the ministries that we're doing. Every single week, I believe you're hearing about new opportunities, whether it's premarital class or soul restore or the grief support group or there's youth alpha. There is literally something going on almost every night of the week at the warehouse across the street. And it's evidence of the activity, the life that's in this church community. When we got back together for our parking lot services a little over a year ago, there was barely 100 people. Okay, but you look to your left and your right right now, and you see that, man, we're striking distance. We're pretty near where we were at pre our distancing period. So God is at work. There's a lot of movement here, but at the same time, we're looking at our capacity financially, and we're saying, man, we're not really matching the activity that's going on right now. This might be the most alive and active and enthused time in our 11-year history, but it's not the most well-funded. The reality is, When we were in that period of distancing, we had an associate pastor leave staff. We have not rehired for that role because we don't have the means to do so. And when we look ahead, we're looking at all the efforts, all the works that are going on, and we're saying, how could we possibly grow and sustain this? We took on the leanest and meanest budget of all time this last year. I mean, we always run lean and mean. This is really mean right now. 
how we're operating, and it's just not going to be sustainable. So it led me to consider this on a deeper level. And there was one statistic as I started considering our culture of giving here at Branches that really stood out to me. We're gonna put it on the screens. In the Branches community, we have 397 givers. That is individuals and giving households, okay? Married couples, families, uh, 397. Of those, 180 are giving less than $100 a month. And if you combine that with those who are giving less than $200 a month, that's 236 of the 397 givers that we have here at Branches. When you factor that out to a percentage for the community, that means 60% of our givers contribute 10% of our budget. That's reality. And that was a reality that caused me to pause, caused me to reflect what's going on in our branches community, that 60% of the givers contribute 10% of our budget. And it led me to consider three things. Number one, it makes me wonder if this is you. And the reality is this isn't dealing with those who are giving nothing at all. So the majority of you, maybe the strong majority of you in this room, I'm speaking to if I'm addressing this group. I'm asking you, what do you believe about community? What do you believe community really is? You know, if we're basing our understanding of community from what we see in the scriptures, we understand that we all come together. When we come together as a community, we all bring something. It's shared participation. That's what the word fellowship means in the scriptures. So we're all giving according to our means. And as a result, as a community, we all mutually benefit. You know, that's not understood in our society. We understand that. There is a rabid individualism. It is extreme. It maybe even got more extreme during our period of distancing. A lot of people's mindset is, how can I shave off a little bit more for myself out of the hole? But if everybody does it in society, we know we're going to be left with nothing. And the same is true in the church. The church should be the first and the last place that still understands Wow, I can give something to a greater whole. It's not just going to benefit me and my kids and grandkids. It's going to benefit my brothers and sisters around me. And it's going to benefit even those beyond the church, which is the plan of the kingdom of God. So do you understand community? And I want you to know there are people around you who do. 40% of this congregation is giving 90% of the resources. So that means there's still a good portion of people that are seated around you right now that are treating you like community. They're treating you like a brother or sister. They believe in your benefit through this ministry, and so they give. I'm calling you to emulate their same example. There is nothing I want to hold back from you. Please don't hold anything back from your brothers and sisters. You know, it also makes me consider where you're at spiritually. Where are you at in your discipleship with Jesus? Because the fact of the matter is you open up the scriptures, Jesus talks about money a lot. In fact, he goes so far as to say money can act as if it is a rival God in our lives. How relevant is that for America, much less California and Orange County? That is a sermon that we'll preach. And in the fact of the matter is we are all tempted in this environment toward the love of money. How do we crucify the love of money? How do we ensure that that idol's done away with and we're worshiping the Lord and following him as his disciples? Well, how do you crucify the love of money? It's very simple. Give. Give it away. Be generous. You know, there's a theologian that I know and respect really well. He's now gone to be with the Lord, but he said, give to the point that it changes your life. 
You know, this is what Jesus leads us into. He leads us to that point, and then he leads us again and again and again from experience. He keeps changing your life. Right? But you may not understand that. You may be in a position saying, what am I going to lack? What am I going to lose? You don't understand what you're going to gain. You don't know how it's going to change your life until you give. How your priorities shift. How your understanding of your job shifts. How your relationships in church community shift. How your understanding of what you have in the Lord shifts until you give. So I'm inviting you, I'm encouraging you to go back to Jesus, go back to his teachings and pray through what you have to carry in this. How you can take your discipleship, your following him to the next level. And number three, it leads me to this question. Do you trust us? Do you trust us as leaders in this church community to be good stewards of your contributions? I was on an elder retreat this weekend. There's nine elders that make the financial decisions for this church. They set the budgets. They hold the staff accountable to the budgets. Do you understand six of those elders are not paid? They're not on staff. They are your brothers in this community. They are seated around you. They're involved. They're the givers in this community. And they're making those decisions. And they're taking very seriously their responsibility with those budgets. Now, I don't talk about this very often, but, you know, we are trying to build integrity into the church regarding finances. I know the perception of people in culture. All the church cares about is money. And in some cultures, that's granted. Okay, when everything is the million-dollar renovation of the multi-million-dollar facility that we already own, and the pastor is making exorbitant six-figure salaries, I understand that sensitivity. Nobody knows what's going on. We, you know, we talk twice a year, the state of the church. Get into the details of what's going on in the finances. I'll answer any question that anyone has live. I'll get into the details. Our salaries are modest in our community. There's nobody that's getting rich off this community. Nobody wants to. Okay, I've never gone in 11 years as a pastor. I've never gone to a single interview with another church ever, and certainly not one that was going to pay me more money because that is not what motivates me. I never asked for a salary increase from our elders ever because that is not what motivates me, and it's not what motivates this team. I can assure you of that. So do you trust us? Do you trust us? And if you don't trust us, have a conversation with us because I'm more than happy to talk through any obstacles that might be in your way. Understand that we want to lead in this with integrity. There's not a single thing I'm going to ask you to do, invite you to consider that I don't do and consider myself. That's poor leadership. If I say, I want you to, to be in a community group, I got to be in a community group and value community. If I want you to serve with our partners, I got to serve with our partners. If I want you to consider being generous, I've got to give generously. That's the posture of all of our leadership. Trust us in spite of the lack of trust that you have maybe in other works. We believe that we can stand for something different. And I'm amazed. I'm astonished. I praise God for the fruit of this ministry. I look around with what we have, what is being accomplished. I know it's a work of the Lord. But I get hungry. I get excited. I look at this and say, what if we could unlock the contributions of our brothers and sisters, and we were truly community with each other, and we were truly walking in discipleship with Jesus, what would take place? I said at Third Wednesday, I didn't say this first service, at Third Wednesday I shared, I was on a call with the deputy director of homelessness for the city of Huntington Beach, and offhand, one of the recommendations he said was, hey, would you guys consider being the hub of food distribution for all the city of Huntington Beach? 
okay, well, like, what's your first delivery that, you know, you guys are going to be receiving? 50 pallets of food. Where are we going to put that? How are we going to fund that? Who's going to organize that? But it makes perfect sense that the church of Huntington Beach would be the distribution center for all the food that's going to go out to the needy. We got to say yes. But that sort of like vision and those sort of opportunities are being placed in front of us all the time. I want to just say yes, 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 because we can. We can if you heed this call. So thank you so much for your time. You guys know that I don't do this, but once or twice a year, if that, if you're visiting this morning, you just won the reverse lottery. The fact that you're hearing this. So Lord bless you. We're getting into God's word. And, uh, you know, I do want to address those of you who are visiting and you've been visiting a year, two years, three years. Stop telling yourself you're visiting. You're not visiting. You're part of this community and you're being served by your brothers and sisters. You know, and by the way, if you're struggling to have a roof over your head and food on your table and you're in that category of givers, I don't mean to shame you. Because according to God's vision, look, if you're giving out of your poverty, you may be given more than the majority of this church and you fall into that category. So there's no shame in your gifts. And if you don't have food in your belly and a roof over your head, this community has established a fund so that we can give to you. There's nobody that's between jobs that shouldn't have a place to live or somebody who goes hungry tonight in this church family. That's the other message that needs to be conveyed alongside this. So again, thank you. Thank you that you're not just gonna listen to this, move on with your day, be indifferent. I really believe that you're going to go away, you're going to pray and seek the Lord in this, and he's going to lead you into the direction that he has for your life. Let's open up to Matthew chapter 22. That's where we are this morning, and guess what? It's not about money. And that was intentional, because I don't want to give you that heartfelt appeal and then get into a topic of money, and then you think, oh man, he's really laying it on thick. He's really... Twisting my arm behind my back. No, I mean, this is about devotion, so of course it's going to be integrated with that discussion, but it's not something that's explicitly being discussed in the passage, okay? Matthew chapter 22. And the last two weeks, we've been talking about this loss of privilege that the religious elite are going to be facing as they get removed from their role in the kingdom of God to be replaced with the undesirables. You know, the sinners and the tax collectors, the prostitutes, Uh, Jesus said, those are the folks that are listening to the message of Jesus, listening to the message of John, and they're actually changing their lives as a result. To assert that the religious leaders would lose their metaphorical reserve parking spot in heaven. Okay, this is a big assertion. These are the guys who believe that they are public relations for God, right? To assert that God is against them, actually, as Jesus is doing, it makes sense that when we're finishing out Matthew chapter 21 last week, what we heard was they were looking to find a way to arrest Jesus, and we know ultimately kill him. But Jesus is bold in his preaching. The truth must be told even at the cost of his own life. He isn't done explaining in a variety of ways the plan of God to replace them, and this time he's going to tell it through the context, this story of a wedding banquet. Let's read it together. Verse 1, chapter 22. So Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. 
But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Yeah, there you have it. Weeping, it was first it was money, now it's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Tell you, nothing in Bible college prepared me for this. There was no class on, this is how you make a heartfelt appeal about finances and then talk about hell. You know, like... I didn't take that course. I'm just like, I'm giving you the best I got, guys. I'm available, you know? But here we are. This is the Word of God. There's so much in this passage for us. And it's all couched in the context of this first century wedding feast that the king is setting up for his son. This was actually a multi-day set of festivities that the king has set up for his son. And as it was all kicking off, the king sent his servants to go and get all those who had RSVP'd for the event. So there's a group of people who said, hey, we're coming. They sent out the servants to remind them that it's going on, and they they refuse to come. And the king doesn't just say at that point, okay, burn the city. No, the king responds with sort of this persistence, right? In verse 4, he says he sent the servants a second time, this time with the message that all the fixings are prepared. The meal's on the table, but it's getting cold. Get to the feast. You know, and some of us have been there when we're hosting something. You've had an event. You've had a party. It's hard enough to get the RSVPs, right? It's challenging. It's just an email now, guys. You click the button, yes or no. They even give you the maybe option. And we don't get to it until the last day, right? That's challenging enough. And then on top of that, you got the no-shows. You know, if you're hosting a wedding or something like that, it's $1,000 ahead in Orange County to have a wedding. And they don't show up. Like, we've all been in that position of anger. And this is exactly what happens. In verse 5, they're no-shows. You know, the, the invited guests ignore the king's servants. How do they respond when they're invited in? Well, you know, one says, I've got these prior commitments. I've got this land. You know, I've got this business. You know, and, and, and others are hostile. They actually mistreat and abuse and kill the king's messengers. Now, whatever the flavor of their rejection, whether it was just general indifference, hey, I've got other things going on, or it was that hostility where they killed the servants, the response is the same. The king is enraged. This is an affront to his own dignity and that of his son. So he sends the army to level the city to the ground, right? And when we read that, I think we go, whoo, you know, what's going on here? Easy boy. I mean, I can understand the judgment and the violence toward those who actually murdered the servants, the messengers. But you're talking the indifferent, those who didn't take the RSVP and actually show up and you know, they were the no-shows. They had their own thing going on. I mean, we've all been angry about the no-shows, but do we want to send an army and, you know, kill them? I mean, what's going on here? And, and I think as we recognize this, this is a great teaching point for us because Jesus' parables and stories, they're not always sensible and clean. 
they don't always make perfect sense in just the context of the story. And any time there's a stretching kind of detail there, like, oh, this seems kind of out of place for someone who just didn't have people show up to a wedding, that's when we start taking notice. Something deeper is being communicated here. So let's dig in a little bit to what's happening. We know that this first group of invitees who don't show up are representative of the Jewish institution and the Jewish leadership at this point. And they're the ones who have either been indifferent or have actually opposed Jesus and the other prophets. All right? So when you just read it on the surface, you think, oh man, people just don't show up to a wedding. You know, now we're going to send in an army. But, but this is all connected to real events that are going on. If he told the story, they didn't show up and the king was sad. We'd all be like, what does that even mean? How is God actually responding to these folks who've rejected Jesus and the prophets? He's going to send in an army? Well, if you know history, in AD 70, just a couple decades later after the ministry of Jesus, the Romans would be sent in to lay waste to Jerusalem and destroy the very temple grounds that Jesus is preaching from. So he's drawing a straight line from their refusal to accept this invitation to the kingdom of God straight to their ultimate destruction. That's what he's accomplishing in the early part. Now, returning to the parable, what does the king do next? Well, while the meal sits cold on the table, he devises a new plan and sends his servants out into the corners of town and into the streets to invite in anyone and everyone. Literally, verse 9, the command of the servants is, invite in anyone that you find. And they do. They go out and they fill the wedding hall with what Jesus says are the good as well as the bad. Everybody's invited. It's sort of just this indiscriminate invite. I was participating in a bachelor party once where the activity during the day was to go skeet shooting. And uh, we went out to the Inland Empire, somewhere out there where there's some open space, and uh, we went skeet shooting. That's the whole story. No, I got details here. So the... You know, I'd never been before. I, I'd never done that activity. I'd never held a gun. I'm sorry. I never shot a gun. You know, I didn't have a license. I didn't watch a YouTube video. I think I signed a waiver. But then they handed me a shotgun. And they handed our crew a shotgun. And if you were there, no offense, but some of these guys, they had no business holding a shotgun. And like, that was it. I got the shotgun, and I thought to myself, wow, they'll give anyone a gun out here. You know, like, to what do I owe this privilege of this weapon? You know, I'm going to go Dick Cheney with this thing. I just know it. Like, for those of you who know a little bit about politics, he shot a guy on a hunting trip on accident. Former vice president. Yeah, great. So, like, to what do I owe this privilege? To what do I owe this responsibility? Nothing. I don't deserve this. They'll give anyone a gun out here. And I kind of feel the same way in this passage. It's just indiscriminate. The people that are being brought into the son's feast, you know, it's the desirable and the undesirable. It's the sinners and it's the righteous. It's the people who have bad as well as good. You know, to what do they owe that privilege? To what do they owe that responsibility that they would have a seat at the feast? Absolutely nothing. And yet the wedding hall is filled. And that's it, right? We're done. Let's bring up the band. Uh, lock arms and skip down the yellow brick road, right? I mean, wouldn't it be nice if that was just the end of the parable? The wedding hall was filled. Everyone's involved. The bad as well as the good. But then we have verse 11. 
Or among those who are brought in from the street is one who's not wearing the proper wedding clothes, which would traditionally just be a set of white clothing. And we're not given any details why they didn't put on the clothes, but the point is they were unprepared, and the story takes a chilling turn. The king tells the servants to bind the unprepared guest hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a not-so-subtle allusion to hell. And the conclusion of this parable in verse 14 is, many are invited, but few are chosen. Now again, if this were just a sensible, logical story, guy shows up without the clothes, the king looks at the guy and says, yo, dude, change your clothes. Go home and put on some other clothes. But this is where the story stretches a little bit. It gets a little intense, so we know that this is something to pay attention to. This is illustrative of truth. And the truth is, as much as the first wave of invitees took for granted their seat at the table, so there's this second wave of invitees, the Christians, among whom there are going to be those who take for granted, again, their seat at the table, and so face the same fate as the first wave. The lack of proper attire demonstrates the inconsistency this individual has with their attendance at the feast. They're there, but they're not really there. They're not ready. They're not prepared for what's going on. So don't mistake the lesson that's being taught here. God is gracious. That's clear in this parable. Hey, bring in everyone, the good as well as the bad. But don't think for a second being invited in through that grace means that there are no demands placed on those who take a seat at the table. Don't think for a second, just because God is gracious, that no demands are placed upon those who claim a part with him. There will come a time, a time of judgment, where the sheep will be separated from the goats, the prepared from the unprepared. Now, that's not a stretch to understand that this group really stands, and this event stands as a warning to those who are merely Christian in name and not in reality. That phenomenon of being Christian in name and not in reality, it's increasingly dying in my generation and as the years go by, right? There was a time in history where American and Christianity just were synonymous. You're an American? Well, you're a Christian. You know, the two just go hand in hand. That was sort of the assumption in our culture. Social scientists call this the social desirability bias, that there's this kind of collective assumption on the part of our society that, you know, if you want to get ahead, if you want to be a good person, attached to that was being a Christian. You know, all of our national leaders, they need to be good Christians. If you're going to pick a spouse, it's got to be a Christian. You want a good and hard-working laborer, well, they've got to be a Christian. So everyone in America was Christian, Christian or not. Whether or not they had any fruit, whether or not they had any reality, or whether or not they had any real faith behind that statement, because it was sought after, right? It's the same reality in Huntington Beach, you know, with being a surfer. Everyone kind of wants to be one because it's desirable in our context. You know, when a surfer comes to church and they have a good experience and they're talking to me on the patio small talk, one of the first things they ask me is, so man, you surf? You know, that's always going to come up. And because of this social desirability bias, I like want to get as close to that as I can without lying. You know, so I'm like, yes, I own a surfboard. Or, yes, I have been in the water with a board and some of my appendages have touched it at certain points. You know, like, I'm going to get as close as I possibly can to filling in the desires and the perceptions of this person. There was a time in history where that was the case in America, but that has quickly eroded. Especially in California here, in my generation, you don't get any extra points for being a Christian. 
In fact, you get extra points for being anything but a Christian. There is less and less desirability in it. So it appears in surveys as if Christianity is in decline in America, but the fact is that desirability has just gone away, and now people are finally being real with themselves and real with other people. The wonderful thing about this is, as the party clears out, what you get left with in my generation, the generation before me and after, is that increasingly the people who are still at the table are increasingly wearing the proper attire because they mean to be there. They mean to be there. I want us to think about a couple things as we reflect on Matthew chapter 22. The first thing I want to assert is that God's recruiting everyone. You know, do you mean to be a part of this feast? Well, I got good news for you. God's recruiting everyone. His servants went to the corners and out into the streets and were told, invite in everyone that you meet. People say, I can't attend this feast until I get my life worked out. Have you heard this before from people? I'd love to go to church, but I got some things I got to straighten out in my life. Send them to Matthew chapter 22, because they invited in the good as well as the bad. (laughs) Tell that, oh, you got some things to work out? Go work it out with God. Work it out with his people. There is an open invitation to this feast. Everyone's invited, and it's a mixed bag. That's the church. That's what it should be. The most gloriously random collection of people in the world. All nations, all backgrounds, all cultures, all people, all being made new in the likeness of their creator. With their mess, their hang-ups, their problems, their wounds, their passive-aggressive behavior, their insecurities, their crazy thoughts about everything that's going on in the world. This isn't the perfectly manicured porcelain family suburban church. There's no such thing. The kingdom of God is a collection of anyone and everyone who is receiving the invitation of Jesus. You know, some churches, I talked about this at the leadership class this last Monday night, they draw up demographic studies and they come up with a target audience that their church is going to reach, you know. Okay, let's get together in the war room. We're going to reach Joe Huntington Beach. You know, and he eats three steaks a week, and he makes $150,000, and he has 2.5 kids. And everything is set up to reach Joe Huntington Beach. And I think, yeah, let's reach Joe, and let's reach Jane, and let's reach Jim, you know, and let's reach Julia, and let's reach Jesus, and let's reach Joanna. Let's reach them all. Everyone is invited (laughs) And let's let our lives, not just this church community, be that open invitation for all who would receive it. But along those lines, make up your mind. Make up your mind about your attendance at this feast. That invitation is in your hands, in my hands, and the table set. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, don't think about the social desirability of it. I could care less about the social desirability bias here. I'm not going around, like, investigating, like, so are you going to the feast, and you think it's a good idea, and you, okay, I guess I better go. Or you don't think it's cool anymore, and you don't think it's cool anymore? Oh, I better not go. Like, forget that. You know, I don't care about winning extra points in the world because I know the latest rules and the latest philosophies and the new terms and everything that's always changing in this world. Oh, I'm up to speed on it. I have crumpled up the world's report card and thrown it away. I have picked the party that I'm going to be attending. 
For you, you may not be in that same place. You may be struggling. You may be on the fence. You may think, man, I don't know. I've got this agenda. Or I've got that agenda. Or, you know, the, the arguments of this world today, some of those are pretty compelling. I don't know how to work out these ideas or I'm afraid of what I'm going to have to change. Don't be afraid of what you're going to have to change coming into this feast. Nothing's better for you than the life that prepares you for eternity, than the life that prepares you for the kingdom of God. Nothing is better than conforming to the perfect love and goodness of Jesus. Make up your mind about something beyond today. This world's vision, a lot of times, you'll hear this sentiment, all we have is now. When you think about now and that's all you have, you're blind to the kingdom vision of eternity. You know, you're not going to be saying YOLO, you only live once, all we have is now when you're taking your last breath. You're going to be saying prayers. Say your prayers now. Commit your life to Christ and live forever. And finally, beware of indifference. Beware of the temptation of indifference. This is for all of us, whether we receive the invitation already or not. It says the first group paid no attention to the king's servants. You know, there was the group that actually opposed the king's servants, but there's this other group that was just sort of indifferent. I got land, I got business, I got other things going on, and so they were indifferent. But they experienced the same judgment as those who came against the servants. And that's because they're not bystanders and spectators. They thought they could be, but they weren't. It's the same thing the U.S. feels about China in this conflict in Ukraine. But China wants to sit on the sidelines and say, oh, this isn't our fight. We got our own priorities. We got other things going on. And everybody's like, no, you're not doing that. You're not a bystander. I mean, you got responsibility here. That's the same reality in the kingdom of God. Nobody's a bystander. My creator is your creator, is their creator. And we're all going to answer for our relationship to this wedding feast. So make a decision if you haven't made that decision. But if you have, and you said, I'm going to RSVP, well, then get prepared. Don't fall into indifference in your preparations. He said he wants white clothes. Put your white clothes on. There's a scary part of like verse 11 and what this passage ends with, but it doesn't have to be scary. You know, it's just reality for us. So, you know, we can look at this and go, man, what are the white clothes? How can I make sure I'm prepared? What do I wear? What do I wear? What do I wear? And there can be that fear. But that's why Jesus came. He came to like spell it out. This is what the white clothes are. You know, this is what the fruit is of the kingdom of God. I don't want you to have to guess. You don't have to guess. It's so simple, and it's the life that's going to be the fullness of life for you. So let's not fall into indifference. Let's not let another priority take the place of Jesus in our lives, whether or not we've made that decision or not. Let's set him before everything else and prepare for the feast. Come hungry, because there's going to be a massive amount of satisfaction for everyone who's there. Let's pray in line with what we see here emerging from Matthew chapter 22. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite up the band to lead us in a time of worship. But would you pray with me as we consider what Jesus has spoken to us in this word? And Lord, we want to start by giving you praise. The fact that I'm in the wedding hall, that I'll be at the feast. The fact that any one of my brothers or sisters will be there too is not on their own accord, not because they're so righteous, they got it all together. It's because you made the decision. You sent your messengers to go out to the corners and the streets, and you said, invite in anyone and everyone who will accept the invitation. And Lord, it's on your grace. It's by the work of Jesus, your son, 
It's by his work on the cross that we have a privileged seat at the table. To what do I owe that privilege and that responsibility? Nothing of myself except your grace. Lord, I pray for those who've been on the fence. I pray for those who've been saying, I gotta wait. I gotta figure it out first before I step in through the threshold of that wedding feast. Lord, that's not the case. Your word says that's not the case. They're coming in, they're coming in with a bad track record. They're coming in with a heart that's got a lot of mixed motives, but Lord, you're receiving them. You're making them new. You're transforming them by your grace. So Lord, would you lead them by your Holy Spirit? Would you speak to them this morning? Would they make a decision in their heart and mind that they know they need to make? Would they RSVP? Would they say, I'm coming. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to live a life that's fruitful for your kingdom that doesn't prioritize all this project over here or this interest over here. You're going to be first. Lord, would you lead people to make that decision? They can say that prayer. They can commit themselves to you this morning. Lord, I believe that if I call on your name, I'll be saved. I'll be brought in. Lead them to make that decision. And for all of us, Lord, remove that indifference. Even if we've said, I'm going to be there. I'm going to participate. Lord, we can fall into apathy. We can fall into spiritual slumber. That's not what you've called us to with the short time we have left, Lord. You want us to be prepared. So I pray, Lord, that your words, that the word of God would come alive for my brothers and sisters and that they would come alive in response to what's being revealed, Lord. Would we be covered in that white clothing, prepped for eternity, living for eternity, not for the temporary things of this world. The land is going to be revoked. The business is going to be bankrupt. Our life is going to end, but your kingdom is going to go on forever. And there's going to be so much satisfaction in it. So Lord, make us hungry. Make us hungry for that feast to come. Wash away the indifference. Make us come alive by your Holy Spirit.